Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. What's going on? I've been uh, on like this environmental high for the last couple of days. Um, a green high. <laughs> oh, my God. All of those images from around the world. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah, I mean, like the 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 numbers of how many people have been marching in Canadian cities that came out at the end of Friday was was amazing. And I think that it's easy to kind of like forget that there were things that were happening in like many, many, many small communities like across Quebec. I know there were 70 events held and there was little marshes, but the big one was Montreal. Did you see Montreal's pictures? I saw so many pictures. Yeah, it looked uh, incredible. So incredible. Yeah, yeah. So it's going to be very interesting to see how that translates into this election. And so this episode, we're going to try and explain to you, dear listeners, what the role of mass mobilization has to be in relation to an election. And so I think, um, you know, it's it's like incredibly inspiring to see all of these young folks who have organized uh, these these climate strikes all over the world. But one thing that I already see happening that we cannot allow to happen is this type of co-optation from uh, from politicians. And so I'm I'm talking about uh, Justin Trudeau, like attending the march. I was so hoping like I was going to tweet that I really hope that we have like some sort of Australian egg boy equivalent in Canada when he shows up and someone did yeah. try someone tried someone, someone tried, tried yeah uh to get <laughs> Justin Trudeau egged but uh he got swiftly arrested yes I believe tackled to the ground <laughs> yes um yeah. but the the reason why I was hoping for that is because it doesn't make sense for Justin Trudeau to attend a climate strike uh, nope. because he is highly responsible for some of the <laughs> ways that the climate is getting worse for humans. And so him showing up is just another example of how he uses uh, his his uh, public image to try to create um, an idea about who he is that doesn't actually match with his policies. And given how uh, this country responded to, say, uh, just last week's racism debacle, it's a dangerous thing uh, when someone like Justin Trudeau, who seems to have all the latitude in the world uh, for for forgiveness and for people to trust him um, in in like, you know, amongst the populace. Uh, that when he does present himself as the guy on climate change, you have shows like the Patriot Act with Hassan Minaj saying that he is really great for the environment um, and people believing that perhaps the Liberal Party is on the forefront of climate change. Um, and they're co-opting this movement largely led by youth. And um, that's unacceptable and dangerous because if people believe that and then go out ahead voting for them, believing um, that the liberals care more about the climate than they do about uh, the business interests that further the, the, the climate crisis, well, then we're just getting ourselves into even more trouble. Yeah, it was very confusing. I also thought it was unacceptable and inappropriate for him to be present at the at the rallies because... Well, for all the reasons that you stated, and also because it's like part of co-optation is to really confuse the issues. And 
like the climate strikes were really amazing because you had this massive groundswell of support that was primarily a y- among youth, uh, youth who had been organizing and organizing with this date in mind since like for months, right? Like the ba- the last big climate strike day was March 12th. Um, and that rally, like I was at the rally in Quebec City on March 12th. And that was really big. And I thought, oh my goodness, like the next big one's going to be really big. And it just happens that it falls in the middle of our election. And so, of course, politicians are going to try to make political hay off of it. But for, for Trudeau to go to Montreal, the rally that was the biggest and most powerful in a community where the environmental movement is actually quite strong, one of, like probably the strongest uh, location of environmental actual activism in Canada right now, is just so offensive and gross and you know, he wasn't welcomed. People marched along him and enchanted that he bought a pipeline, which I thought was important that people did that. But it's also it's it's a it's a reminder that our movements are in a location right now where politicians do feel completely safe showing up at spaces that they have no right to be in. And and partly that's because glo- like global climate change is just that it's a global issue. And the the the, the solutions when you think about global solutions, of course, the Prime Minister of Canada might have a positive role to play in a global solution. But by and large, he is the target of our of our rage, of our demanding for more or demanding of action. And he has to wear not just the decisions of his government, but he's the head of Canada. He has to wear the decisions of governments that he disagrees with. Like that's that's kind of how it works, right? You are the Prime Minister of Canada. You are the top guy of the country. And um, and the, and the damage that the that the liberals have done by turning uh, climate pricing and the and the climate tax into into what it has been turned into is going to be very difficult for for activists to untangle from among people who are just like the carbon tax is bad the tar- the carbon tax is bad and therefore I'm against fighting to improve the environment because. They they really took that issue and made that the only issue uh, that they were that they were really really willing to fight for and the, and, the, and the, this is not an episode on the on the carbon tax but it's like not even a super sufficient measure either so I mean did Trudeau relist all of the the, the waterways that 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 Harper delisted from environmental protection did he reverse any of Harper's like catastrophic climate policies I, you know no no so. Screw you, Trudeau, <laughs> for being there. <laughs> and, you know, like, we're, we're we're not just talking about Trudeau in this episode, although we totally could. <laughs> but, yeah. You know, like, this is, you know, this is, like, one of the issues of our time, connected to so many different issues that we will often talk about on this podcast, whether it be uh, connected to uh, issues of white supremacy, connected to issues of capitalism, and so on. Like, this is one of the most... Uh, dangerous manifestations of a, a whole host of social issues um, that are, are happening in our time. So for this, um, this should be uh, the, the the like one of the number one issues that are is uh, discussed during the election. And so we do not have the luxury of, uh, you know, just ignoring this issue and trying to talk about, I don't know, something else like milk or whatever um, during during the election in these times. We don't. And so we also don't have, we cannot have um, the complacency to allow uh, politicians to pretend like they're working on something that they're not. And so uh, we just wanted to go through a little bit um, of how we should be thinking about how politicians should be responding um, to such 
uh, organized fervor around the environment uh, as the election very quickly approaches. That's right. I mean, so this week, there should be an echo effect of Friday's marches and and how the parties interact with what Friday delivered is going to be the test of their response to average people's demands. Because I think that the climate strikes were very average people. Those were mass mobilizations of people who perhaps have never taken to the street before. Um, the majority of them had never taken to the street before. And the reason why we know that is because they're historically the biggest rallies in Canadian history ever, 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 right? Like, I mean, mm-hmm. this is some historic shit and it's happening at the time of an election. And so, you know, will the liberals respond to what happened with better green policy? Will the conservatives respond with better green policy? And how will the NDP try to capture the excitement and the Greens, I guess, as well. How will they try to capture the excitement of the climate marches and turn that into public policy that is bold, that is clear, that explains to average people how we're going to fight this massive, soul-crushing problem of climate change? Um, and, and you know, we're recording this on Sunday, and so the week hasn't started yet. But, but while you're watching how politicians are talking about the environment, like, has the environment become the number one issue or are the politicians trying to push other issues that they are more comfortable debating about? And I suspect that the, that the conservatives and to some extent the liberals are going to want this issue to kind of go away because the liberals can only go so far on the environment before they run up against the NDP and the Greens having much better policy than they have. That's totally true. And like, I, I, I want to, you know, I feel like it, it can't be left alone that it, it's not worth it to talk about the conservatives and anybody else um, right of the liberals on, on the climate right now. Like if you if you care about the future of, you know, the human race, like uh, I hope um, one that you're not even considering voting for either of those parties. But like I hope you know that that is, uh, you know, those parties um, are obviously <laughs> <laughs> not interested um, uh, in in the the difficult choices that will have to be made and the difficult changes that will have to be made to like our economy, um, uh, you know, vis-a-vis the environment. And so it's not worth talking about. And uh, part of the reason, you know, like I got some questions last week after our, our podcast about like, why are you so focused on the liberals when, you know, the conservatives are just as racist or worse or whatever? And it's like part of the reason mm, good is question. it's a it's a great question. Like part of the reason we focus on them uh, because like coming out of, um, you know, last week was, well, it was because, you know, it was the leader of the Liberal Party who did the most racist thing. But <laughs> but but also <laughs> because they present themselves they present themselves as authorities on these topics, as as people who are doing the right thing on these topics, and often, as Nora gave a bunch of examples about at the top of the show, will actually just further uh, conservative actions or ignore previous conservative actions, allow to continue previous conservative actions that uh, that make things uh, for the environment much much worse, and so it's it it becomes incumbent on people like us, I guess, um, to sift through the bullshit quagmire so that you can see what's really underneath all the ways that they present themselves. And so that's why we're focusing on them. But that is not to say that the conservatives don't deserve some flack. So fuck them too, but um, (laughs) (laughs) not worth talking about because you should already know that. 
Yeah, the, the the conservative plan is so thin that that there's not there's not really much to it. Like they they are not publicly denying climate change. So like bravo fucking Andrew Shear, I guess. But their their plan for an environment, I mean, it, it doesn't have any more depth to it than three pillars, which is that they want to make um, green tech be a big part of the economy and they want a greener natural environment. I mean, they're they're kind of like the Ducks Unlimited conservationists, right? This model that you can have really nice parks or really nice piece of land that kind of might ignore indigenous rights and title to that land or might ignore the fact that waterways are fucking connected. And so if you allow um, large mining projects or large other industry um, projects that, that will po- poison the watershed, the, the, the conservatives are, are masters of not caring about this issue at all. And what they inject in this election, which is, is I think, something that isn't hawked about enough, but they inject this, um, this myth that Canada is among the, the cleanest countries in the world. And what our <laughs> job, right? <laughs> and our job is to show poorer countries who just don't get how important the environment is how to clean themselves up. And so part of the conservative uh, platform and, and the way that they talk about the environment is it's like, okay, Canada's doing everything that we can. And it's really the third world countries who are polluting the most. And it's them that we need to, that we need to target or we need to help or whoever, like however they want to massage that language, right? In, the, in their platform, it's taking um, climate change fighting global or something like this. And it has a very insidious effect uh, especially among people who are conservatives and so if you listen to this podcast and you've got family members or friends who are conservatives this is I think really important to talk to your family about that Canada is still among the most polluting countries in the world this is not a first world versus third world thing and in fact the so-called third world like a lot of co- of countries whose whose economies are rapidly in, uh, industrializing in this moment they're able to skip the dirtiest energy part because they're rapidly industrializing in a moment where clean energy is possible and viable. And so, you know, there's, there's from us shipping our fucking trash and recycling to the Philippines and the Philippines being like, fuck you, Canada, take this back. Right. Which is such a, Mm -hmm. a symbol of, of, of how we treat other countries in the world. My God. To, to the fact 100%. that among Canadians, like our, our car ownership and our car emissions are some of the highest in the in the world. We 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 pollute per person. We some of the highest quantities in the world. And most of that isn't actually individual consumption. Most of that's industry. And so the conservatives are useful to remind us that capitalism is the problem, that overconsumption is the problem, that the liberals just want to mitigate this stuff to make it sound good, which is why they're so obsessed with a market-based solution like a, like a carbon tax. And the NDP and the Greens, I mean, the NDP has not been able to articulate their platform or their vision well enough. And the Greens, it's baked into their brand. And so they're able to kind of get away with them being the Green Party. And it's kind of clear enough as it is. So I'm hoping to see this week um, a real like mm, focus on uh, the climate as uh, in this week of the Canadian election. Uh, but some of the things that I think are missing in the conversation 
I'm really hoping that there's some intrepid journalists out there who are willing to like ask these parties about. For example, you just mentioned that Canada is like, you know, one of the biggest polluters, which means that we're really contributing to the way that the the climate is changing and how that manifests in like um, different weather patterns and so on. And so when we see uh, a lot of devastating, uh, really extreme weather patterns, say in the Caribbean or in South America, and that creates a number of like climate refugees. What is Canada's responsibility um, uh, to to folks who have lost their homes, their livelihoods as a result of some of the ways that Canada refuses uh, to address um, its responsibility for the change in climate? How are we like what is the responsibility that we're going to be taking on? Right. Like these types of really big questions are things that youth are talking about uh, when they're doing these climate actions. Uh, but I almost rarely ever hear it being talked about at the top. Um, I do think that uh, Elizabeth May has talked about this, but I don't think that this has been an, an issue that's been asked to all the leaders. And I want to hear them talk about it. Well, it's a foreign uh, foreign relations or international relations question, isn't it? And our international relations discussion in this election is so thin. It's it's like there's no mention of the fact that Canadian soldiers are in Mali. Canadian soldiers, like what, we've committed more than a billion dollars to have our, our ongoing engagement in the Middle East. We've got Canadian soldiers in the Middle East, right, in Syria and Iraq. We're in, the, we're in Ukraine. And and it, it's always kind of around war, right? And, and the climate fight is a global issue, as you've said. And so how did these issues translate into foreign policy of each of the parties? And the, an the answer is it doesn't at all. At all. It's unbelievable how, how there has been no discussions. And, and, and who's the only group that's all like, eh, we want a foreign policy debate? <laughs> I'm sure you saw that this past week. Is the is the fucking punk debates, yeah. <laughs> like so, um, and and that would have been ridiculous. And so, like, I'm I'm super happy that the that the monk debates had to collapse on that because their questions would have sucked. But, but the fact that we have not uh, moved into a direction where foreign affairs and foreign policy is is directly tied to climate change and climate policy, and not like this benevolent, how can we give money to make people better? But yeah, how are we accommodating uh, climate refugees, or how are we giving money? Are we giving expertise? Are we are we showing up to help people who've been devastated by floods? Do we have flood expertise? Like, are we building forest fire expertise in Canada with our own forest fire uh, problems? Well, see, are we sending? For and so this was going to be my response <laughs> to that is it's like it is a foreign policy issue. Issue, but it's like not just a foreign policy issue right like there's going to be uh, there already are people who are being displaced everywhere and so it's a plan sure uh, for for foreign policy but it's also a plan for what's going to happen within Canada because uh like things are getting extreme here too like from the north to the I mean I was literally about to to name all the <laughs> all the cardinal directions and not really <laughs> say anything <laughs> specific about it <laughs> because except the south <laughs> except the, the south, south. Okay. Uh, but like you know the, the the change in climate in the north and the way that that affects uh, the the type of subsistence that people have available to them the change in climate uh, to the west and all of the 
um, uh, the 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 dryness and the forest fires, even all the the kind of tornadoes that you're seeing in southern Ontario, which we didn't get used to have before, and flooding. It's like the way that the hurricanes are making their way farther north. It's 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 all it's all bad. It's all bad. And so we're gonna need a plan um, that is. Uh, that both recognizes our responsibility to people outside of the borders of Canada and within the borders of Canada. And yeah. Do, yeah. do we have the plan? Is it there? Who's talking about it besides the youth? I don't know. Well, this is where you've got to give the, a bit of credit to the Green Party. And I, I would say only a bit because literally that's their reason to exist. So fuck. <laughs> I mean, they're the Green Party. Yeah. I would expect no less. Um, you know, Elizabeth May is an extremely effective communicator sometimes. Sometimes she's in situations where you're like, wow, that was bad. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, she was on The Current this past week and she was talking about the Green Party's policy. And it was the first time that I really felt like I'd heard an explanation of any of the party policies that was very concrete in how they understood, like, just the enormity of this problem and how it touches every aspect of of the economy, of the society, of, of our existence. And so, you know, the Greens are talking about it. But the problem is, is that the the... If if a journalist was thinking from the perspective of green policy, they would look at what the Greens are, pro- are proposing. They would say how far away all of the other parties are from what the Greens are proposing. And they would look at what the what the experts are saying we need to be doing and how far the Greens are away from that from that expert advice, because the Greens are not like there. They're not providing us a program to save the planet. They're it's better, but it's not going to actually address the, the, the problems and the way that these that these mass social movements are. Are, are demanding and so um and so part of this is media who's refusing to talk about it part of it is the fact that there's two parties that are kind of also refusing to talk about it in any fundamental way and the ndp has to figure it out as well the ndp has to be more bold with their comments more bold with their promises you know like they they've got free uh, public transit as part of their platform why is that not being talked about more is there a is there a bus strategy that will connect rural communities in this country is there a strategy to um to get high speed rail like um, between every major city in this country i mean we need expensive and massive infrastructure projects and we need someone like jagmeet singh to be like you know what we're funding this because this is important we we funded the canadian national railway 100 fucking years ago 120 years ago we can fund this now we're going to fund this because it's important and not be so obsessed with the logic of of finding that money and making sure we can pay for it because big infrastructure projects have to happen and the liberals were doing that but there's but, but most of their pro, pro, um their their projects are, are private public partnerships and there's a lot of problems within that and that's a whole other discussion but it, it's very clear like either there's um a lack of knowledge or there's or total ignorance at the level of of journalists who are not understanding these issues or the the parties are reluctant because they know that the solutions are really really big and i think that they can be popular but you have to popularize them which is which is where you go back of course the social movements one of the things that I think is really important about what you just said is like, and, and what that I think has been missing from the way that politicians talk about the climate is that you brought it really close uh, to p- 
people's everyday experience. I think that um, some of the ways that people get uh, a little bit confused about the climate or, oh, that's that thing over there that might be coming for us, but I don't know how, <laughs> is because they don't, they can't see how it's like really directly connected to their lives. I mean, obviously, as uh, the weather events uh, uh, intensify, that definitely becomes closer to people's lives. But things like, you know, a, a shift in infrastructure policy that changes how we do transit or changes how we get around, um, those types of things need to be connected uh, to the climate and to the environment and how we talk about these things a little bit more. And I don't know, I wonder why they're not being connected quite so much. Maybe it's because it's too dangerous uh, for, for political parties to talk about, to, to you know, uh, to commit to, to such massive changes. Um, but those are the types of discussions that we need so people can see how it's connected to their own lives and not only feel like it's connected to them when we're talking about, say, attacks. Do you know what I mean? Totally. I think it is dangerous because, like, if you take the NDP, their big green policy that I can think of off the top of my head, so the, the policy that has gotten out anywhere, is retrofitting homes. Right. And that is, and we've talked about this on this episode before, that is, like, meaningless to me. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Like, as someone with windows, and I know my windows are 100 years old, and, you know, I've, I've just got our house off of oil because we were able to switch to electricity and all this kind of stuff, and I'm like, retrofitting my home, what the fuck? Like, I have to go and and renovate? Like, I, I've got a list of renovations we have to do already to just, like, live here. Like, you know, and so, and, and of course, that doesn't talk to renters at all. That only talks to homeowners. Mm-hmm. And so... These these are these are like the pocketbook solutions. They're the they're the environmental fucking light bulbs that don't work very well. There's the the single use plastic bans that would be great. Except, I mean, I think I, I heard Justin Trudeau announce that they had banned single use plastic, and I was like literally eating with a single use plastic fork. I'm like, yeah, you sure did. <laughs> what the fuck? Well. I guess I'm breaking the law right now. <laughs> Um, but but it, when we start to think more broadly about about connecting the environment to every single platform policy, that's when you start to actually point at the real problem. And the real problem is capitalism. And none of the parties are are equipped to talk about that in a serious way. And not just capitalism, but white supremacy. Because here's the thing also about uh, some of the stuff that I was just talking about in terms of uh, climate refugees. Um by and large, those folks are going to be indigenous, black and brown folks. And I, you know, like I certainly don't trust uh, the Liberal Party to do anything more than uh, wear us like a costume, as I said last week. Um, but I, I, I need these uh, these politicians to if they're going to be really talking about this stuff to understand that they, they also need to be talking about how the climate um affects us all in different ways and particularly affects certain communities worse than others because uh white supremacy like these are things that um that all need to be understood and tackled by any party who's seriously going to be considering how they're going to 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 stop the climate crisis white supremacy is the 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 tie that like weaves everything together and it's it's interesting to think about which policies that you and I would call racist that have come out in this election and how they don't necessarily have a direct um, tie to the environment. Let's say I'm thinking of a couple of policies in my mind right now. And you wouldn't say that those are environmental policies, but any policy that demonizes and denigrates racialized people is going to have an impact when we start talking about the movement of of global movement of refugees, opening our borders or our arms or our homes to people who are in need and who need to come to Canada. They're all connected. And when we have any policies 
that call into the humanity of that call into question the humanity of black and brown and indigenous people that's a narrative that stretches across policies and so there's like a direct impact on how people white people especially see uh, people who are in need from around the world who are not white. And then that feeds into an anti-immigrant sentiment and it feeds, feeds into rising xenophobia. I mean, it, like, it, it's kind of nice to look at the world through all of these systems because it's like they're all, they all work together. <laughs> like, you can really make these conclusions quite simply. And the job of the politician is to hive all of this stuff off to make nothing make sense. <laughs> In the last like 10 minutes of this show, I, I do want to talk about maybe one of those issues or one of those those um, threads of policy that we kind of dropped like a hint about last week when when Justin Trudeau uh, alongside trusty Bill Blair um, announced uh, their their election platform on guns, which uh, if I can just say <laughs> was just so very bizarre in the way that they talked about it they were like uh I, I don't know if you saw the 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 press uh materials that they created but it was like it said um uh thoughts and prayers aren't enough like it was really what? like it felt like a yeah oh yeah it was like a response to uh, american movements around gun control from the liberal party like it was it was very weird yeah <laughs> It was very, very strange. I don't I didn't see anyone address that in the media at all. And I was like, oh, so disappointing. But also last week was like a quagmire of shit to respond to. So, you know, who knows? But that's that's how they responded to it. But each of the parties seem to want to focus in some way on uh, gang violence or violence and uh, criminality Um they've all come out with some sort of of platform on these things and the way that these things are talked about are of course related to the way that these parties envision people of color and black people because that is who they think that they are talking about in these um in these discussions and it's very clear and so uh i just you know when addressing gang violence if your answer to um, like the, the the liberal party's answer to like addressing uh, quote unquote gang violence is to uh, criminalize more guns, which is like you know guns shouldn't be in cities. I get that, sure, um, but the their answer isn't going to do anything about the root causes. It's just going to arrest more people. And I don't I don't really like. What are you doing? about the root causes because people have been being arrested for this type of thing for um some time now <laughs> the problem hasn't shifted because that approach doesn't work if poverty is the root cause if substandard access to education um, inability to access employment is one of the problems like more criminalization isn't going to assist the problem it just makes it worse and so taking a look at how the parties discuss how they're going to deal with crime is really telling about how how the parties view people in these communities who are affected by um, uh, these acts of violence 
Yeah. So the conservatives have um, a whole policy under their uh, a safer Canada kind of thing um, that <laughs> it's got three three pillars and the pillars will not surprise people. Um, one is like cracking down on gangs. The second is gun laws that target criminals. And then number three, in no hint of irony, I guess, is equipping police. <laughs> Gun laws that target criminals and equipping police. Maybe, what if the police are the problem? Okay. Um, <laughs> and so uh, so they've got this this website, and it's funny because it's, like, weirdly laid out, and the bullet points don't make any sense. Um, and they're, they're very clearly whipping up uh, a, a feeling of fear from among white Canadians. Like, they're, they're talking about uh, revoking parole. They're talking about tougher sentences, and the and then the Conservatives, the party of, of of tough on crime, right? They got rid of the mandatory minimums, uh, or sorry, they introduced mandatory minimums, and they got rid of the consecutive life sentences that you can hold, so people can be in jail until they're dead. And they want to create new sentences for violent gang crime, like as if, as if like you can just be in jail for fucking two hundred or three hundred or four hundred years. What what really gets me in this? is that it's like there is a crisis in in cities where affordability and poverty are are like at the highest levels that they've been for a long time and people are super desperate. There is absolutely a crisis. And what this addresses is not that crisis. This addresses this just continues to put more people into jail. It criminalizes black youth. It makes white conservative voters think that that's the real problem. And it ignores the fact, as you say, that there's root causes. But what I find the most fascinating is that Stephen Harper's tough on crime policies, where he introduced the ability to be in jail for back-to-back life sentences, because up until then you can only be in jail for a a murder, for first-degree murder, up until 25 years. Stephen Harper let you be in jail for as many years as a judge wants to give you. And um, and then created mandatory minimums, which puts a lot of uh, uh, pressure onto judges to just jail people rather than to find alternatives to jailing them. And wh- and what has what has Justin Trudeau done about these really barbaric changes to the criminal code? Oh well, he ruled them all. No, no, that's not correct. <laughs> he did fuck all. No, I think that was his he official that was his official fucking policy was fuck all. And so it is rich to me. That that the that the liberals are going to have any policy that targets gun violence that's going to work, especially now with Bill fucking Blair uh, in the in the driver's seat, and the the conservatives are simply pushing further for more criminalization in the same path that they had started under Stephen Harper. It's really fascinating how this is just like a continuous trend towards increasing criminalization in a fucking country where homicide rates have dropped significantly over. Th- 30 or 40 years and Mm -hmm. where who is more likely to kill somebody if you're a woman it's someone who you are related to or who you have been married to or with or or used to be with and for a man who the most likely person is going to kill you is not criminal activity it's fucking random actually it's a stranger stranger danger is actually dangerous for men and i don't i think that's a whole other thing we could talk about that's pretty interesting (laughs) yeah and you know Part of the the thing that made me like so cringy at the liberal uh, promise and announcement is because I am sure that what they were doing was they were thinking, okay, black Canadians are probably really upset with us. Can we announce something that will directly affect 
um, the way that uh, the, the difficulties that black Canadians are experiencing in their communities. And they probably thought like this, this is it. This is the way to go forward. Um, and it's such a, a, a gross way uh, to think about um, a community of people uh, because they they're again not interested in dealing with any of the root causes of these things um, that people are experiencing in their communities and then the other thing that I want to say about the the conservative plan is and you really should go check out this website it is very <laughs> funny I who they need to fire whoever is working on their web design because all the bullet points are the number one. Like the number one <laughs> is the bullet point, except for the it's last. Very strange. Except for the last word, it's just a bullet. <laughs> it's like, it's like a list, but all the items are first. The the last, like, there's there's a bunch of uh, of things that they talk about that make it very clear to me. I don't know if you're reading through the lines on this one, Nora, that they are interested in privatizing uh, prisons. Um, they're. They're talking about making prison time more meaningful at the same time that they're like, literally, that's one of the bullet points is making prison time more, more, more meaningful um, at the same time that they're talking about um, getting rid of parole about uh, as they're talking about tougher sentences. And they also talk about in their in their platform an audit of the money that the government is spending on prisons. And making sure that they're spending their money correctly. That, to me, is the setup for a government policy uh, that allows for private institutions to come in and run prison systems. And I think we've talked about on this podcast before how there are private companies who are involved in uh, the prison system in Canada. But it's not reached the level where there's private companies like running our uh, entire incarceration system like it is in the United States. It seems to me that reading through the lines in this in this thread of plans that the conservatives have, that that's something that they want to move forward on. I, I totally I think that's totally fair unless they want to make it more meaningful because they'll like let the let the people who live in prisons have like parties and celebrate milestones and have access to training programs that are really fun. I mean, you can read it that way, too. I, I suppose we could, but I don't know <laughs> if Sheer and friends are truly interested in that shit. <laughs> I don't think so. You're, I think you're totally right. And I, and I hope that folks listening to this podcast can appreciate, like, you know, you heard it, heard it here, folks, first. <laughs> like, that's, <laughs> that's it. And no one is, is talking about it. Um, we have to mention the NDP. The NDP came out just this morning, Sunday morning. Awkward day for an announcement, but anyway. Um, for their gang funding, which is $100 million dedicated to help keep young people out of gangs. So the Canadian press story has very little details, and so I'm sure those details will come out in the next couple of days. But but Singh was asked if any of that money would go to the RCMP, and he said no. So, bravo. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. great. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, the NDP is probably thinking about youth programs, creative programs, uh, giving money to cities to be able to offer spaces uh, for youth to do stuff. So that would be that would be wonderful. That would be good. 
Um, of course, it doesn't uh, touch on the affordability stuff, which is elsewhere in the NDP platform and also not sufficient. But um, starting the conversation around like youth and supporting youth is is great. The other part of their um, of their gang related promise is something that I think has gotten a lot of play in British Columbia because I've heard folks in BC talk about it, but I haven't seen anyone else talk about it in Canada, which is that they're mimicking a lot of the, 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 the policies that the NDP government in British Columbia has promised, specifically related to anti-money laundering. And so that is great too. Um, so they've, they've talked about a $20 million um, a disbursement to create specifically in the RCMP a money laundering unit. I don't know if that needs to be in the RCMP, quite frankly, but um, talking about money laundering is is absolutely critical because, you know, we've got Maxime Bernier that's blaming the affordability crisis in Toronto, Vancouver on, on immigration, whereas the real culprits, of course, are money launderers, are the banks, are speculators and out of control housing prices that have made some people extremely rich and have made a lot of people homeless. To the journalists who listen to our podcast, um, what because I've I've heard that there's a lot now. Like <laughs> <laughs> some of the uh, the most interesting feedback that I get is from journalists. Um, if if you folks are interacting uh, with uh, with the parties on this issue this week, because it seems like that's something that might also be talked about this week in addition to the climate, when they talk about being tough on crime, as every party does every year, every year that there's an election, it's like one of the signature promises that they promise to make people think that they care about their safety. When they do, please ask them what they're doing that's different from what's been done before. <laughs> okay? <laughs> because if, if again, like, if all that we ever talk about, which it seems like it is in every election, it, um, is, you know, like, tough on crime means more money to the police and more power to the police and, and tougher sentences and whatever, and you know, and it doesn't really change anything. Just as a journalist, maybe ask them why they're still going on with the same plan that doesn't change anything. Ask them to delineate how it's different. Get them to get real a little bit on this issue. Because I think so many of us know that the issue goes so deep and is about so much more than just what it is that is denoted as criminal in our society. And I think it's really important that journalists are equipped to not forget the last term for the liberal parties or the last term the conservatives were in power or um, you know, for the NDP and the Greens or whomever, how they're going to be different from those previous terms that the ruling parties have always promised the same shit. Ask them how it's going to be different. Communities of color, black communities, indigenous communities are counting on you to like make it apparent that uh, this shit doesn't change anything for us. So just get a little bit more creative, a little different. Change it up a little bit. Don't let them get away with the same old, same old. Ask a tough question. Ask a tough question. Thank you.